Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, five years ago, reporting about Harvey Weinstein's alleged sexual harassment helped kickstart the national Me Too movement, a movement based on a phrase coined by activist Tarana Burke in 2006, well before accusations against the Hollywood mogul went viral in 2017. Me Too launched a reckoning against sexual assault and harassment in the workplace, holding powerful people accountable, from members of Congress to leaders in media and business. In a New York trial in 2020, Harvey Weinstein was convicted as a sex offender. Now as his second trial for sex crimes gets underway in Los Angeles, we reflect on Me Too's five-year anniversary. Later in the show, Berkeley College of Music graduate Fabiola Mendez built her successful career using an instrument few have ever heard of. I started playing when I was six years old, um, and I'm 26, so I, I guess it's been 20 years of the cuatro being by my side. How Fabiola Mendez's passion for the Puerto Rican instrument, the cuatro, shaped her path to composing music celebrating her Afro-Latina heritage. But first, joining me remotely is Stacy Malone, executive director of the Victim Rights Law Center and member of the Massachusetts Governor's Council to address sexual assault and domestic violence. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you so much for having me. Also with me, Deanna Monsera, director of membership and programs at Jane Doe Incorporated. Thanks for joining us, Deanna. Thanks for having me, Kelly. All right, I want to start out this way. Um, let's go back uh, before Me Too and. I'd like to hear from both of you about what it was like for women who were survivors or women who were keeping secrets about having been assaulted. Um, so I'll start with you, Stacy. Yeah, I think Me Too has been such a powerful experience in reflecting on the years prior to Me Too. We saw survivors of rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, keeping their experiences to themselves, not telling their family members, their friends, or their coworkers, and really managing the best they could in silence. They were dropping out of college. They were afraid to go to elementary school. They were worried about going to conferences for their jobs. They just held it in and didn't seek services as much, um, were afraid to, to just express who they were and what they experienced, and their lives just unraveled in so many different ways. Uh, Deanna? Yeah, I think that uh, before uh, Me Too movement, um, survivors were less likely to report sexual harassment or sexual assault in the workplace. And there was this stigma and this uh, misbelief that, you know, reports were false. And when we know that less than 2% of the cases reported are false. Um, so 
had the, the Me Too movement really brought up those cases to light and really started, folks started really believing survivors and victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault. So it really shined a light on the lives, the experiences, and the voices of survivors. So I wanted to uh, begin this conversation with your setting the table with what it was before and also um, in our lead-in to really use Harvey Weinstein as kind of a frame for this because um, he was one of the first names to bring this to some kind of national attention, and he's still on trial now. And the details of his horrific crimes are nauseating, to say the least. Uh, but on the upside, as you both have mentioned, uh, here we are uh, five years later and, and much has changed. I mean, much more could change. We'll talk about that. But much has changed. So first, let's take a listen to Me Too founder Tarana Burke reflecting on the movement's five-year anniversary. Five and a half years ago, we couldn't have a sustained conversation about sexual violence in this country, and now we can. Five and a half years ago, survivors of sexual violence, no matter how they identified, couldn't feel comfortable to talk about the things that they experienced, and now we can. So we have made so much more possible in the last five years. In fact, we probably made more possible in the last five years than we could have in in the next 20 years. That's kind of an amazing statement, uh, Stacey Malone. Uh, you've been working at the Victim Rights Law Center for 12 years. Uh, you were a volunteer before. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could have imagined a time where, as the Pew uh, Research Survey said in September, more than twice as many Americans at this point support than oppose Me Too. And here's another piece. 70% say that people who commit sexual harassment or assault in the workplace are more likely to be held accountable than five years ago. That's a pretty giant leap and assumption um, from certainly what you saw when you began 12 years ago at the Victim Rights Law Center. It really has. It has changed so much. At no point did I imagine that in my lifetime that there would be a movement that would uplift survivors' voices in this way and call for change on you know, every platform, every opportunity. So it's it's kind of incredible to see survivors come forward um, and feel that empowerment to share their experiences and demand change. So I agree. Five and a half years ago, we wouldn't even have these conversations. Uh, Deanna Mancera, are you seeing the same thing? You've been at uh, 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 Jane Doe for seven years, and you, before that, you were director of a rape crisis center. Yes, um, you know, I think that this cases and the the, the Me Too movement really, um, again, for many of us as advocates and survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence, we've been working tirelessly having this conversation, hearing what was happening with me, the Me Too movement. It really just um, made me excited to hear that folks were more open to have this conversation. At the same time, I do have to highlight that the reality is that most people do not um, do not come forward. The reality is that the the vast majority of sexual assault uh, doesn't receive the same sentencing that all these like high profile cases that we have seen. You know, the Me Too movement and the um, hashtag Times Up um, really didn't necessarily uplift certain voices like transgender, the transgender community, um, you know, particularly black and trans, black uh, trans women and brown trans women 
were not really uh, didn't feel included in in these voices and this uh, this movement. There's still a lot of work things uh, that we need to do. So I'm going to hold the the the, the piece that you just said about the young women, uh, the black women, and the leadership, and go uh, to a point that I know that you two can also talk about, which is your first point that most people don't come forward because they don't think they're going to be believed. And I just want to remind um, our listeners that we're not talking about, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. We're talking about cases that we've heard recently, fairly recently. Um, and there's been suspicion when those women do come forward. So here are two high-profile women who did come forward. Um, and some of the conversation that you raised, uh, Deanna, again, was front and center about whether they were to to be believed. So this is Christine Blasey Ford. She testified against Brett Kavanaugh, who is now sitting on the Supreme Court. This is during his hearing. Um, And also Amber Heard, who for many years uh, lived with actor Johnny Depp. She's an actor herself um, and uh, took him to uh, trial because uh, she was abused. Um, So we're going to hear a a bit of their testimony. This is Christine Blasey Ford, Amber Heard, describing their experiences. I want to say that the clips include descriptions of sexual assault, which may be disturbing to some listeners. I am here today not because I want to be. I am terrified. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. There's no polite way to say it. The jury looked at the evidence you presented. They listened to your testimony, and they did not believe you. They thought you were lying. How could, I'll put it this way, how could they make a judgment? How could they not come to that conclusion? So those are, you know, very powerful testimonies from, as I said, two women who ended up being quite high profile in their uh, bringing charges against the one case, the partner, Amber Heard, and the other uh, former acquaintance of um, Kavanaugh, who is now on the Supreme Court. Most of the conversation, well, I'm not going to say most, but a lot of the conversation at the time uh, for both of these cases were, I don't believe them, or should they be believed, Stacy? Um, and Deanna raised that, that um, people are still not coming forward, and it's because of this, right? Absolutely. It is because of this. As a society, we have to actively choose to believe victims, and that's hard for us. You know, we've been socialized to believe that women are liars and manipulative, and if we reset the framework to believe survivors, then we have to hold the perpetrators accountable. And that's hard because sexual violence is such an intimate crime, often perpetrated by someone we know. That means we have to hold our our family, our friends, our bosses, our colleagues. We have to hold these people we know accountable for the harm against us. So survivors navigate this world wondering, who can they tell? Who should they tell? Will anything happen if they do? And as we have seen, even when survivors are able to muster up the courage and speak on a national platform, the instinct of society is to not believe them and to blame them. Deanna, hearing those clips, um, what do you think? First of all, as a survivor of sexual assault myself, you know, when I hear these really high profile cases and then the responses of uh, society of like not believing and 
victim blaming, um, the first thing I feel is, you know, why would I talk about my situation? Why would I be open if the first thing that people are going to, you know, say that I'm lying or that I'm making things up? So I think, um, you know, for survivors, what we want to hear is that, yeah, you're not alone. This has happened to more people than we, we believe. Um, and I want to talk to someone who really is going to believe me and listen to me and not uh, victim blame me for what happened to me. So I think that those are some of the things that as survivors we go through. And unfortunately, some of the decisions of how society sees these cases most likely are going to uh, create barriers for us to come forward. So there is a little light from the Pew study, which says overall Americans see false reporting of sex, sexual harassment and assault in the workplace as relatively rare, which would mean they, you know, those people who do come forward should be believed. Um, they say that not reporting these experiences, however, is more common, which is what both of you have underscored in this. And people don't come forward because they fear not being believed. And as you powerfully said, um, yeah, Deanna, I mean, it's it's traumatizing on, on so many levels. So you're re-traumatized then after that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Stacey Malone, Executive Director of the Victim Rights Law Center, and Deanna Mancera, Director of Membership and Programs at Jane Doe Incorporated. We're discussing the five-year anniversary of the Me Too movement. Okay, Deanna, I want to get back to your point about uh, the Me Too movement seen as largely white and white-led. So back to even the phrase Me Too. Originally, activist Tarana Burke, who is African-American, coined the term. She coined it for young people, a, young, a group of young survivors. She herself is a survivor, and she wanted them to know they were not alone. So Me Too became a way of helping them say, okay, yeah, this Me Too, other people in the group. Um, and that was that. That was in 2006. Uh, actress Alyssa Milano must have seen it somewhere. She says she doesn't remember. But anyway, um, in 2017, in response to the reporting coming out about Harvey Weinstein and, again, some of the horrific uh, crimes that he was accused of, Alyssa Milano sent out a, a note about her experience and said, hashtag me too. And then it just blew up. And it took a while before it became clear that actually this was not a new phrase, that it had come from uh, founder uh, Tarana Burke, who was African-American, and that essentially in that moment she had been erased. Alyssa Milano, of course, uh, uh, apologized. You know, uh, Tarana Burke was then embraced um, as part of the leadership of the Me Too movement and the founder, in fact, and, and the one who coined the term. Except here we are now, Deanna. Um, and I, I believe it might be, but you tell me, because of that sort of kerfuffle at the beginning, that a lot of folks of color and potentially young people, as you've said, were turned off saying, oh, you tried to erase the person that even created the name. So that must not be a movement for me. Is that why you think there's been um, a, a little bit of reluctance or a lot of reluctance by um, folks of color? with regard to the Me Too movement? Yes, absolutely. You know, so it took like 11 years for 
one, the media and the world to see that these things were happening and for people to uh, start like really having these conversations. And all it took was this white famous person and um, Alyssa Milano to, you know, put in a Twitter hashtag me too. And if you are a survivor, you know, and it became a trend. Uh, when, as you mentioned, this is this has been going on for even before 2006, Serena Burke have been doing this work for a long time. And if we go back to like history of like the sexual assault movement and anti-violence movement, you know, we really need to honor the lives and the survivors that came forward, who were many trans and queer uh, people of color who were really highlighting these issues long time before Alyssa Milano, a long time before a lot of the folks that are now like this famous people talking about it, which I don't want to say that it's wrong that they're talking about it because I actually appreciate that um, famous people are making it something that it's okay to talk about. However, uh, there are voices that are being left behind um, when you do that. And one of it was definitely Tarana Burke. And, you know, as I mentioned before, um, the voices of trans folks are also not in this, um, in this Me Too movement and the hashtag Time's Up. And the reason why is because those voices are not really represented in, the, in what we're hearing. So they are not the, the voices that are put at front. And so I think that part of the reason why they don't feel included in this movement is because they're not in, included, literally, physically. And I mean, when we talk about um, you know, trans uh, survivors, we know that one in three trans women and one in two trans men have been sexually assaulted. Um, so I want to note that with regard to um, trans women, probably trans men, but particularly trans women, um, murder is also a part of this. So it, the, the violence escalates. Uh, we haven't said, but we should, that sexual harassment is not about sex. It's about violence. Um, and so the violence escalates in certain communities, as you've uh, talked about with regard to um, the folks in the in the trans community, and that needs to be noted, which is why um, more voices or some voices need to be at the table uh, for that representation. But Stacy, you were saying that you thought that it was becoming less of a white women's movement. What what do you see that indicates that, and and um, what what do you see happening in the future? Well, I think there's no doubt that despite being a movement initiated by a black woman, that it's largely advanced, you know, the voices of wealthy, white, heterosexual, able-bodied women. There's no doubt about that. And for the most marginalized survivors coming forward with their experiences in so many ways is still not a truly viable option. So I think the future, it, it is critical that the movement really is just inclusive, right? That it is inclusive and uplifting of voices of trans women, of black women, of indigenous women, of women with disabilities. Um, and I'm hoping that with the evolution and, and honestly, the co-opting of younger generations that are demanding their voices be heard, that this movement will continue to evolve and demand changes in our systems. Um, but I think, you know, it's <laughs> it has a long way to go. And, and I agree with the start of this movement. I mean, what a devastating way to start this movement um, by erasing Toronto Burke. Um, and I think that at every step of the way, you know, white women are, are stepping um, in mud, like they're just stepping in it. 
And I think it's important for them to stop, reflect, and be quiet. I, I should add that um, Time's Up, which was, it's a legal arm of uh, the Me Too movement funded by a lot of wealthy, for the most part, white women, um, as a way of offering legal support to um, folks who would not have it uh, in order to sue, um, as an Amber Heard might, or uh, or bring their story to to the front. So we're talking about, for example, um, maids working in hotels. We're talking about a lot of people who were silenced um, and just for all the reasons you said before, but also knowing even if I said something and even if I was believed, okay, now what? So that's, uh, that is that um, is an organization that's set up to try to mitigate some of that. Obviously, you can't get to everybody, but you can certainly make a dent. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Stacey Malone and Deanna Mancera. We're discussing the Me Too movement five years later, which brings me back to Harvey Weinstein's trial, which is going on now. Um, He's serving already 23 years in prison for rape and criminal sexual acts. Um, That was for a case in New York um, in 2020. Then he appealed uh, and... I was stunned by that, Stacy and Deanna, thinking, is this man going to win appeal? Now, he did not. So later on, um, he that was turned down. But I that just says to me that you, you can't, even if you win the victory, you just have to keep going back because I just could not imagine. He was already going to be facing trial in Los Angeles. I'll let you two respond to it. I was appalled. Stacey? Oh, I know. It's, it's, it's so hard. You know, there were just so few wins for survivors. And to think that Harvey Weinstein was being held up as a symbol, like, okay, a movement got him. Survivors got him. You know, it took 80 women to come forward to get this single perpetrator. And now to have it on appeal feels so devastating. Well, um, he lost, so that's good. <laughs> yes. But then to yeah. see him now, you know, now yeah. he's in Los Angeles, right? At trial again. Yes. And it's like, how many survivors does it take to come forward to say, this person is guilty for harming all of these humans? And to have to experience that over and over again and to see survivors continue to be dragged through the, the dirt. And to be blamed for their experiences. I mean, defense counsel for, you know, Weinstein was coming at one of the victims just this week. And to hear how, you know, he speaks about these victims, it's like, it's heartbreaking, right? Because if a survivor who has a platform, a survivor who is famous, a survivor who is well-known can be treated this way, what does it say for a teenager? What does it say for a woman of color? What does it say for a trans person? How... Do they expect to be successful if someone who is famous and has means is going to continue to be bad around in the media like this? Now, um, to Stacey's point, Deanna, eight women are set to testify against Weinstein in this new trial in Los Angeles. And one of them, again, another famous person, is Jennifer Seibel Newsom, who is the governor's wife. She happens to be Mm -hmm. a documentary filmmaker and and actor. Um, But... I mean, good God, to Stacey's point. It took all these women and now a whole other set of women, plus at least one who's extremely high profile. Yeah, I mean, the uh, re-traumatization that that folks have to face, like, that's like, I mean, the fact that they're coming forward and that they're going to testify, you know, kudos to folks who um, are putting themselves to in like such a horrific space because they're going to be questioned 
And, um, you know, what happens to the brain when you've been sexually assaulted or the trauma that your brain is experiencing, you're not going to remember. Many survivors do not remember every single details and every single, like, um, detailed experience of what happened to you. And you get questioned on that. So that to me is like, it, it triggers a lot of things for me. And I know for sure that um, when we have heard from rape crisis centers in Massachusetts and across the country, when this high profile cases happened and when they're watching how, you know, the, the victims and survivors are being questioned, how much that triggers for them, the, the hotline calls actually go up in the rape crisis centers. So that's what we have heard from the programs. Mm. And from the advocates, we have heard that too. And that, that's the impact that we don't get to hear a lot. The, the, the trauma that this is really causing on like victims that didn't get uh, either a fair trial or never got to come forward. Um, so those are just some other things that people should be thinking about when this high profiles are out there. And when you question a victim, I mean, I know that that's their job, what they have to do, but honestly, it's, it's so triggering. Yes, I want to reaffirm what Deanna yeah. is saying is we represent over a thousand rape and sexual assault survivors a year. And when these trials are public, um, we receive phone calls constantly. And it's survivors that are re-triggered, just like she was saying, right? And even though you may not remember all of your entire experience of being raped or sexually assaulted or sexually harassed, it has it has changed you in a very mm -hmm. deep way um, that triggers survivors over and over again. And so while I appreciate that we're putting a spotlight on sexual violence and these tri trials are public and you know we can see Harvey Weinstein you know, and try to hold them accountable, the impact that it has on survivors in a different way, right, in a daily way, is, is very deep and harmful to them. Well, and if we, mm -hmm. if we think about the cases, right, we remember the cases by the perpetrator's name or the abuser's name. We don't actually remember these cases by the victims and survivors who came forward. Yes, being a survivor is so lonely, and we absolutely define all of these cases by who the perpetrator is, and we forget the experiences, the voices, the individuals and their families that have had to live through this trauma every single day. Well, here's a voice of a survivor who obviously experienced a lot, but uh, she was asked about her experience during a protest in 2017. I myself am a survivor. What does the volume of support mean to somebody who's gone through that? It, it means a lot. It's really, it's a little emotional. It's emotional to see so many other people have the sign that says me too, and to stand up and say that they are allies to people who are survivors and they won't tolerate it. I just wanted to play that to, um, to take us back a little bit to the beginning of this uh, conversation when you both said, along with all the very real issues that you have raised, that the platform that it has allowed some people, me too, uh, for five years is still valuable, even with some issues that need to be addressed. And I thought of that young woman's voice um, as you were speaking, um, as at least she could say, "There's, I know other people and I have an opportunity to say something. Now, recently, Brandeis professor Anita Hill has written a book. Um, people may remember that Anita Hill uh, testified against um, now sitting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas uh, being sexually assaulted in the workplace. 
it was her testimony and that trial that stirred um, another kind of Me Too, if you will. But she got um, she was also uh, criticized. You know, she only wanted money. It was consensual. All the stuff that uh, survivors have heard when they come forward. She was not believed. It was a big, big, huge national story. But um, generally, it's thought of as a moment uh, when there began to be some coming together of victims and some publicly voicing um, what is was going on in the workplace specifically. So here she is now. She's written a book and she's looking forward. Uh, that what happened to her was you know more than twenty five years ago. So this is Brandeis Professor Anita Hill uh, speaking out uh, recently about the Me Too movement. We need to, in fact, do more than enact laws. We need for leaders in our businesses, as well as in our uh, military, as well as in our churches, to stand up against this and realize that the behavior that we once thought was just normal and regular and routine and, you know, was inevitable is no mm -hmm. longer inevitable. We should never be thinking of it. And we should be using our resources uh, to eliminated. I want to play both of those uh, excerpts just to you know, remind us where we are five years later. Um, and as Deanna, as you've said, long, long way to go. Uh, but these are interesting takes and the conversation is public. I think that's what's really important, as both of you have said, that the conversation is public now. Deanna. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for bringing those voices um, to the space, because I think I, I really appreciate that you, br you brought that up and that those voices are being heard in, in this conversation. Um, and yeah, again, like it definitely gave us permission to talk about it. it. It told us like, again, you're not alone. There's all these millions of people, you know, um, using the hashtag me too all over the world, not just in the United States but all over the world. And it really gave us all permission to be out in, in some ways, like, and to also let the people who are causing the harm to let them know that we're watching you and the community is watching you and we're going to respond. And it, as, as mentioned before, like it's not what the behaviors that you have done in the past as are not longer okay. And uh, and for the victims and survivors, it's okay for them to come forward. What do you want to see in five years from now? What I want to see is for more voices of youth, uh, black and brown girls to come forward and to feel included, uh, for more trans and gender nonconforming and non-binary voices to be included, um, and for really for all of us to honor those who came before us. That's what I want to see. Uh, same question to you, Stacy. Five years from now, what would you hope to see from the Me Too movement? What I want to see in five years from the Me Too movement is systematic change. I want to see court system changes. I want to see prosecutors prosecuting cases. I want to see juries believing survivors. And I want to hear all voices. I want to know all voices have the opportunity to speak their experiences, to be able to share their truth, be able to seek resources and services from programs like ours. There's so much work to do for all of us. And I think that we have to be in this together to navigate it because systematic change, Professor Hill was calling for systematic change. That is so hard to achieve. So I'm hoping in the next five years that Me Too will partner together with all communities and all voices to be able to really change our court systems and demand more change from employers. Otherwise, I think that we're just not going to see what we need 
as survivors um, and as women. Well, I thank you both for joining me today for this very important conversation. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. Stacy Malone is the executive director of the Victim Rights Law Center. Deanna Monsera is the director of membership and programs at Jane Doe Incorporated. Coming up, local musician and composer Fabiola Mendez shares her passion for the unique instrument known as a quattro, historically linked to Puerto Rican folk music. But Mendez has renewed interest in the quattro with her contemporary jazz and pop compositions featured on her albums, as well as upbeat music written for animated TV shows on PBS and HBO Max. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. In 2017, Latin pop singer Luis Fonsi and reggaeton star Daddy Yankee broke records with their crossover Spanish-language hit, Despacito. This is the plucky opening instrumental melody. probably thought the string melody was performed on a guitar, but in fact it was a cuatro, the national instrument of Puerto Rico. It's not hyperbole to say that Fabiola Mendez has been, well, instrumental in reviving interest and enthusiasm about the cuatro. The Afro-Latina singer-songwriter was the first person to graduate from Berklee College of Music specializing in playing the cuatro. Now she is featured in a special series featuring Latina band leaders presented by Celebrity Series of Boston Neighborhood Arts. Today, the singer-songwriter works as a quattro player and a composer for animated children's shows, including Alma's Way, and Work It Out Wombats on PBS Kids, and Mecca Builders, a series on HBO Max produced by Sesame Street. Mendez is also an artist-in-residence with the Boston Landmarks Orchestra. And Fabiola Mendez joins me now from Boston. Welcome to Under the Radar, Fabiola. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you about this instrument and um, your enthusiasm for it. Let's first explain to people what it is. Now, I do know that uh, it has a long history, and the cuatro name comes from the Spanish word for. But if people see video of you, they will see that there are five strings. Actually, can they can go up to ten. So first, what is the cuatro? So I always like to say that the cuatro is an instrument that has you know the guitar influence and the mandolin influence in a way because it's an instrument with double strings but it looks a lot like a guitar 
And this instrument was developed in Puerto Rico by the people um, on the island, and especially taking inspiration from the Spanish instruments that were brought during the colonization period on the island. So the cuatro, again, looks like a guitar, has double strings like a mandolin. And in terms of the style, it's used mostly for folk music of Puerto Rico. Now, as, as you said, the cuatro, um, the word cuatro means four, but the cuatro in Puerto Rico doesn't have four strings. It originally had four strings, which is why they call it cuatro. But nowadays, um, players and makers or luthiers explored with different string combinations of the instruments. So the Puerto Rican modern cuatro has five double strings. So everywhere you see a cuatrista from Puerto Rico, you see a five double string instrument that we call cuatro. <laughs> okay, great. Now, you grew up in a house of musicians. Your mother and father played instruments. Is that how you first came to appreciate the cuatro? That's right. My family is all about our culture and our folk traditions. So I grew up listening to a lot of trovadores, which are the native singers of the folk music, a lot of cuatro players. Um, and I guess it was a matter of time. I mean, I started playing when I was six years old um, and I'm 26. So I, I guess it's been 20 years of the cuatro being by my side. So that brings up an interesting question because you're awfully young, younger still when you got interested in it with your parents at home. Um, that's not a modern instrument. It's not the electric guitar. Um, yep. <laughs> it's not, uh, you know, a fancy harp. What? Why a young woman like yourself was attracted to that? You know, I think, again, the fact that my family was so proud of our roots and um, taught that to me at an early age, I just felt like, you know, this is part of my culture. This is part of my identity, my ancestry or history. And um, as I grew older, you know, that that just became more and more important in my life. Um, and and not, you say that, and, you know, when I was young, it was definitely uh, a tough time to be a quattro player because it was an instrument that was mainly for older people or people that live in the mountains or on the countryside of the island. And me, you know, being a 10-year-old, 12-year-old playing in my school events when I was in elementary school, my friends would mock me. You know, they would be like, <laughs> oh, that's so lame. Um, it's such a lame instrument. And, um, and thankfully, uh, nowadays, and, and thanks also to, you know, the support of artists just like Luis Fonsi, Daddy Yankee, uh, even Ricky Martin, and, you know, all these pop artists that have also looked at this instrument and been like, you know, this sounds like Puerto Rico. This is the sound of Puerto Rico. So let's include the this instrument on on popular songs and that has created an impact and and younger folks are interested in playing the cuatro uh more so now you know than than back in the day when i was younger so um i guess at the end it, it was all about just the pride that i felt in my culture and the support of of my family and and peers of my age that also played cuatro that were just as lame as I was. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, thankfully I found a support group when I was younger that, um, that you know, I, I was able to continue pursuing this art and not letting the comments from other folks, you know, um, disappoint or, or just discourage me. Well, lame no more. You're hip and happening. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> tell me if the shape of the instrument and the unique strings shape the sound 
or do they? Uh, Does it have anything to do with the sound that comes out of it it, or is it how you play it? It's how you play it at the end of the day. I mean, definitely having the double strings makes a very distinct sound because it sounds like a guitar, but not quite because again, the double strings. Um, And for those folks who have never seen a quattro, it looks a lot like a cello, a little smaller than a cello. Um, But imagine, you know, the shape or the size of the guitar, but the curves or the shape of the cello, um, especially with the ears, as we call them on the sides of the instrument. So again, the the luthiers on the island wanted the instrument to look elegant and to look, um, you know, like the European classical instruments that they would see come from the colonizers. So there's this, you know, this mix of Europe and then we also have Africa in, 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 in the grooves and the rhythms that you play. Um, and then we also have the Tainos, which are our native people from Puerto Rico that are more influenced in, the, in some of the melodies and some of the, the language that we use in the songs that we sing. So it's an instrument that beautifully, it kind of connects all these um, influences that shaped our, our culture and our country in Puerto Rico. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to not only explore these traditional sounds, but then, you know, after coming to Boston and studying at Berkeley, having all these different influences from different cultures and seeing how I can apply that to the Quattro is a beautiful process. And in fact, you were the first person to graduate from Berkeley specializing in this and playing it as a main instrument. I mean, people have played it as a side instrument, but as a main instrument, this is what you accomplished as a, uh, you know, throughout your time at Berkeley. So that's pathbreaking. How does that feel? <laughs> ah, it's a big responsibility. It's a big honor. But also everywhere I go, just like we're, we're talking about here, you know, it's, it's educating people about what this instrument is, a little bit of the history of it. Um, whenever I do a performance, I always like to include folk songs. So my performances are kind of like a historical experience for people where they hear the traditional music and then they hear my original compositions and seeing how, oh my God, like I can see how there's this folk influence, but I also hear like all these jazz chords and harmonies um, and studying at Berkeley because no one else played the quattro. I had to study with guitar teachers. So it was a totally different approach in terms of playing chords and all these different harmonies um, and how to apply them to the quattro, which was different because it doesn't have six strings like a guitar. So it was, you know, a process of modifying and seeing how I could make certain songs and, and assignments work. Well, by all accounts, you have done it beautifully. Let's take a listen to um, an excerpt from your 2019 album, Aquilnaldo. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with singer-songwriter Fabiola Mendez, Afro-Latina cuatro player and composer for animated children's shows, Alma's Way and Work It Out Wombats on PBS Kids. We're talking all things cuatro. How does it make you feel when you play the instrument? It always makes me feel like I'm home. 
um, almost literally, because I always say the piece of wood that I carry, which is my instrument, was handmade on the island by native woods from the island. So it's literally carrying this piece of, of land almost, of, of what was a tree. Um, and, to, and, and to many Puerto Ricans, it means, uh, you know, it's the sound of Puerto Rico and especially Puerto Ricans here in the U.S. that are missing home and craving the, the Christmas sounds um, and the all year round sounds of the Quattro. Uh, it, it is very special, especially connecting with those communities. Now, you're not just Puerto Rican, you're Afro-Latina. That's right. Um, and that's that's uh, something that a lot of people are probably thinking, well, you know, what does that mean in terms of who you are and why you have chosen to, in your new album, express a lot of that um, heritage and culture. Why don't you explain? You know, coming to the United States really opened my eyes um, about different aspects of my identity. And back home in Puerto Rico, uh, we all grow up thinking, oh, we're all a happy family. It's all great. We love each other. There's no racism here. We all love each other, right? Um, but coming here and, and looking at the different topics that people are talking about here in this country and, and experiences that people have, I started thinking about how that applied to me in my own um, upbringing and also now as I develop myself and continue growth. Uh, but, but specifically thinking about Latino culture and how, you know, we do have a lot of racism within us and being a lighter skinned Latino and being a darker skin Latino it, 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 you had, there is a difference. And some folks might not get the same opportunities because of the color of their skin, even if they speak Spanish. So um, part of what I'm doing nowadays with my music and that album Afro-Riqueña is bringing all these topics um, to the table so that we can start talking about them. And we can start acknowledging our own racist behaviors and the things that we have to unlearn um, about you know, discriminating against one another. So. My album looks at different poems by Afro-Latina women um, that are, you know, bringing these topics to life and specifically looking at them from a perspective of pride. Um, not necessarily like, oh, you've been calling me this and that and that, but I feel this, I am this, and I'm very proud of, of all of what I am. So um, it's, it's, it's quite a process and, you know, a step at a time. But it's been received in a very positive way. And a lot of folks have been like, oh, I'm so happy that this is happening because we need to talk about this, especially among Latinx communities. Mm. Um, according to the uh, census, 11.6% of Americans who are uh, Puerto Ricans identify as, well, not even Puerto Ricans, just in general, identify as Black and Hispanic. Um, so there's a significant population, and that's why these kinds of conversations are ongoing, uh, certainly, all, all across all the arts. But uh, you've brought it home on your, on your second album, as you said, um, with these poems. So I understand that your favorite one is Dedicatoria, your favorite, right. your favorite piece. <laughs> Tell me what that is, because it's based on a, the, one of the poems of who? Explain. It's a poem by Angela Maria Davila, which was an Afro-Puerto Rican woman. And it's literally the dedication of her, one of her poetry books. Uh, so it's not one of the main poems, 
But I remember opening up that book and, you know, reading that. And I was like, oh my goodness, this feels like it's talking about the women or the people in my life that I want to honor. Um, so it's a very short piece. And it says, um, to my grandmother, the founder of tenderness, to my, um, to my mother, fountain of life. And then she mentions three different women, Silvia, Julia, and Lolita. And those three are, one of them is a poet, another a singer-songwriter, and the third one was an activist for Puerto Rican freedom. So there's all these, you know, figures that are women that were strong and that have represented and, and, and you know, made a path for so many of us to follow. All right, let's take a listen to Dedicatoria from your latest album, Afro-Riqueña. A mi abuela is great and it's also a reminder to my listeners that you are a singer songwriter so you write the songs you sing them and you play the quattro <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh, so that uh, gives you uh, quite a lot of creative input into um, all of your work which is what I know a lot of people are responding to now <laughs> absolutely Para siempre. Um, so the Celebrity Series of Boston Neighborhood Arts f for um, um, uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, I think particularly, brought together a group of Latina band leaders. Um, to my knowledge, there's not a lot of women band leaders. There's certainly <laughs> fewer and fewer of Latina band leaders. Yeah. W what has it been like to be a part of this? Well, I'm really, really grateful to the Celebrity Series of Boston because They've opened their doors to me um, since I think two, two, three years ago. Um, I first, I did my debut concerts for Celebrity Series as part of Veronica Robles' mariachi band, which Veronica Robles is also one of the headliners of the Latina Band Leaders series uh, that they're having this year. So it's a really beautiful coming up. Oh my God, I played with Veronica and now we're both presenting our own projects as part of the series. Um, and, you know, I love how the Celebrity Series just supports local artists. And not only that, but provides opportunities for the Boston communities to appreciate and to learn about different genres and different styles and having all these um, concerts around different communities in different community spaces and free of charge to the public. So um, it's again, it's, it's truly an honor uh, not only to represent being a, a Latina woman, but also having the cuatro as my instrument and, and bringing a little bit of my identity to everyone here in Boston. Mm. So now how do you compose? We've, we've heard now your own product that you creatively control that comes from, you know, everything that you want to say about who you are. How do you compose then for kids shows? Because you're, <laughs> you're, uh, you know, you're still you and you, it's, it's a part of you, but also you have to work with what the product is. So as absolutely, we've, as we've said, you uh, compose for Alma's Way, the PBS Kids Show and the HBO show 
mecca builders. Um, I'm going to uh, take a little uh, excerpts from both of those, and then on the other side, I'll get you to talk about what that's like. What are we even going to do with this box, Alma? Oh, this is way, way, way more than just a box. We're going to turn this into something awesome and fun. This is going to be our clubhouse. Awesome! Yeah! Wow, look at the sky. Oh, no! All right. The HBO show Mecca Builders is um, produced by uh, Sesame Street. And uh, you have composed music for for that show as well. So what's that like? So, you know, my first um, opportunity in this world of composing for TV was with Alma's Way. And I have to say that I've been so, so, so lucky to work with two composers from Canada, their names are Asher Lenz and Steven Scratt. And thanks to them that reached out to me originally, because they are the, um, the, they were the main composers on that show. And because it is a show about a Puerto Rican girl from the Bronx and the production wanted to have, um, you know, very native sounds and authentic music uh, that represented Puerto Rico, they reached out to me originally just to perform the quattro on their compositions. And as the process, you know, I started playing on a couple of their songs and they were like, do you write music too? I'm like, yeah. Um, do you want to try like scoring and writing a, a short cue for this scene? And it just, you know, little by little started um, developing and they really liked what I was bringing to the table. Um, so then they invited me to be a part of the of this other show, Mecha Builders on HBO Max. Um, and then we also got to compose for Work It Out Bombats by, that's also produced by GBH. Um, so really, I, I don't even know. I still, I still can't believe how this just all, um, played out, but at the end, it's a, a totally different approach. Like what you were saying, because we have to look at the notes from the client, look at, you know, what the client and the production is looking for in a specific scene. But at the end of the day, um, a lot of what I'm bringing to the table is related to my culture, to my identity and to you know, bringing a Latin tune here, a little salsa there, <laughs> a little bomba, a little folk. Um, but for the for the Sesame show, that's that one's very different. That one's um, everything uh, is computer based sounds and, and compositions. So it's really gotten me to step out of my comfort zone and listen to YouTube, learn a lot from other composers. Now I watch films and TV shows and I'm, I'm just like listening to the music constantly seeing how they're scoring a certain scene to portray a feeling or, you know, so, so it's really been a, a good, um, a good process and it supports my creative process um, on the other side, because I'm constantly writing. So it's, it's really, it's like a workout. It's like, I'm working out every day, um, writing music every day. Mm. You are enjoying quite a measure of success. Um, I'm not taking anything away from you know, how hard it is to get to the point in the industry that you've gotten, and particularly one that still favors male musicians, so let me say that. Um, yeah. um, and 
you're an influencer now. You're as part of the celebrity series. You're going to be serving as a mentor to up and coming musicians. But already there are four students studying quattro at Berkeley, and I'm sure that wouldn't have happened That's had you right. not gone through. So, what's that like? What What does that feel like to have left your mark in that way? That's part of your legacy now. I feel like it's part of my life's mission to just, you know, open doors so that whoever comes after um, or is walking alongside me feels like they can also achieve things, that they can dream big, that just because you play a native instrument from a small island doesn't mean that you can't dream big and you can't achieve um, big goals as a musician, especially. So, um, you know, everywhere I go, I just always think about this is just taking the quattro further than, um, you know, I feel like every cuatrista has done their, has put their little piece of sand or, you know, has done their work to bring the quattro a little bit higher every time and just keep it current, keep it relevant and make sure that our tradition never dies. Um, so, so again, I feel like I'm just doing my little piece uh, or putting my part of the puzzle to make, um, to represent our culture and to make the quattro even more accessible and that anyone from any culture can use it and can play it and can include it in their song um, because it is an instrument like any other. Well, you're just fabulous. I'm going to extract a promise from you that when you get the Grammy nomination, you come back and talk to us. <laughs> oh, my God. Amen. <laughs> I hope that happens. All right. So I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> so we'll look to, to talk to you around that time as you're about to go get your statue. Um, and I so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Fabiola Mendez is an Afro-Latina quattro player, singer, songwriter, and composer for animated children's series. She is also an artist-in-residence for the Boston Landmarks Orchestra. Her 2021 album, afro Kenya is available now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Catherine Hurley. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>